You're listening to a sermon audio from Cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Well, good morning. My uh, work uh, list has already filled. I've had two sinks repaired first service. And since the elders and the trustees talked about the roof leaking, we'll take care of that today. So we'll get that all done. I am not Bob the Builder. (laughs) Although I got my man shirt on. My man belt. My man boots. Now, people want to know, did I buy these boots just for this? No. Because these came free to me. I'm sure the FBI will collect these boots eventually. Two months ago, a UPS package came, was all just crunched up on my front porch. And I thought, what is this? It had come from the Soviet Union. And it had my return address on it. And the mail gal said, I don't know what you're getting from the Soviet Union, but you may want to talk to the State Department about this. <laughs> so we took it into the house. The mail gal yelled at the screen door, don't open it up in the house. <laughs> What is in this box? So I doodly take it out to the back patio, (laughs) open it up, and there's a sweater, and there's a pair of boots. And I thought, well, the box is torn up. I don't know the return address anymore. I'll just keep them. So maybe at the end of the service, the FBI might be in my home. Maybe I'm broadcasting the Soviet Union right now. I don't know, you know, what's in the boot? But I came as a construction worker because we're talking about Nehemiah today. And Nehemiah was known as a construction worker. That's his primary vision. One thing, Mike is not here. He's preaching at Garden Grove today. The truth was he saw the outfit and he left. Uh, (laughs) So we're talking about Nehemiah. Nehemiah is so often portrayed as a builder. That's not a bad image of him. He did some amazing things. He's one of those characters in the Old Testament we love. Because it's so much fun to tell about his story and all that. And what he accomplished was magnificent. But let's put Nehemiah in context. What was the history around what he had done? Well, Israel had some amazing things done for them by God. And they were given the land they lived in. And they had a tabernacle where God was present. And they built that tabernacle into a temple. And Israel was doing great. Except that they began to turn their back upon God. And the prophets began to say to them, you are not worshiping God anymore. Things have become comfortable for you. You've become lazy. You're no longer following the statutes of God. In fact, there's some evidence archaeologically that they even had the the, the audacity to worship false gods in the steps of the temple. It seems like they had gotten too comfortable and too relaxed with with their God. So the prophets began to say, God is going to judge us. And the Israelis said, no, he won't. We're his children. And the prophets would say, you are going to lose the land. You are going to lose the temple. You are going to lose your lives and everything you hold dear will be taken from you. And they didn't follow. They did not believe. Eventually, after King David, there was Solomon Solomon built an absolutely outstanding temple 
gorgeous in every way. It was the wonder of the world, and people actually traveled to Israel just to see the temple. That's how magnificent it was. But when Solomon finally died, tragically he died a very corrupt man, corrupted by his many wives and false gods. And the people were so afraid that they weren't doing things right that the country had a civil war and split in half. You had the ten northern tribes, the two southern tribes. And a few years later, the Assyrians came in, captured the ten tribes and took them off to the Babylonian area. They were overtaken by the Persians and Nebuchadnezzar. He went down to fight Egypt and on the way he said, look at this country called Israel in the middle. Smashed Israel. And because he didn't want any competition, Nebuchadnezzar tore down the very walls of Jerusalem, pushing them over the top into the valleys and crashing down to the ground like some child overthrowing his Lego can. It was utterly destroyed. He put, a, he put fire to the temple. It was totally burned out. The wood doors, the wood windows, the, the lattice work, the beautiful lattice work in the ceiling was destroyed. The temple became a hollow mess. The covenant, the, the Ark of the Covenant was destroyed. The law of Moses was destroyed. There was nothing inside. Just scorched ruins. And then finally, these last few tribes, the two tribes of Israel were out in the city of Jerusalem and they watched their king, the last king of Israel, have his eyes gouged out. And then 300,000 of them were marched off to captivity in Babylon. And if they looked over their shoulder, they saw the temple and the land they once had. It was no longer there. Where were their heroes? Where was the Joshua or a Gideon? Where was the David? They felt abandoned by God, yet they did not realize that they had abandoned God. Yet God was not done with them. Haggai, Zephariah, they said, you're going away. But God remembers his promises to you. He will restore it to you. But when? When will he restore it? That is the story of Nehemiah. You see, the Jews had a huge influence on the, on the uh, Babylonians. We read about Daniel, who became the best tax collector in all the realm. He was so good, the king loved him, everybody else hated him. But he was a just tax collector. And he was not afraid to pray to the Lord of Jehovah. And for that, he was nearly killed. But the king realized, why cut off the right hand that makes me all the money? And God was glorified by that stand of Daniel. Daniel's friends with him, the Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they chose not to debauch themselves with all the king's food and wine and women. They said, if we're in captivity, we will serve God alone. They chose their food carefully. They chose their activities carefully. And when the day for all the MBAs to be passed out in management in Babylonian, these three stood out. Stood out in such a way that they were hated. And everybody voted them that were most likely to burn in an oven. They were thrown in an oven, all right. But they walked out of that oven unhinged. And then the king became un un unhinged and singed all. God had shown his way. About a hundred years before our story of, ne of Nehemiah starts, there was a king named Azararius. He had tried to invade Greece. 
He lost his queen because she'd made a tactical error by walking into the court. And guess what? That's our story of Esther all over again. She becomes his queen and spares the people of Israel, she and her uncle Mordecai. So even though these Jews are in captivity and they have no longer the land, no longer the place to worship, they begin to become refined and follow God. The way they did that, they developed something called the synagogue. It was in Babylon that the synagogue was developed because you could not go to the temple to do sacrifices or to worship. So they began the synagogue. In some ways, our churches are based on the synagogue idea, coming one day of the week to hear and be instructed in the word of God. So God had prepared them, but the people were discouraged, deeply discouraged. So let's begin with the word of prayer and ask God to show us from Nehemiah what we need to learn about today. Precious Father, we can become discouraged in our life as well. We can also get our eyes off of you and forget and just think you'll always be there because, well, that's what you do. Yet, Father, we need to make sure that we make ourselves attentive to you, to listen to you, to pray and to wait upon you. We ask that you use the gifts and the talents you've given to us. We always, Father, sense we need more, more education, more of this, more of that. Certification, justification, Father, we always wait, wait, wait before we work. Father, help us to stop waiting. Help us to give ourselves to you. Touch our hearts. Move us, Father. May Nehemiah become an example for us in a new way today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's meet Nehemiah. Fifty years before Nehemiah, I'm only going to wear this for two more minutes. That's killing my head. I'm going to be a good construction worker. <clears throat> Nehemiah, uh, but 50 years before Nehemiah comes online, the king gives a certain guy by the name of Zerubbabel. That's an unusual name. Anybody want to name their kid Zerubbabel? <clears throat> um, maybe if you're really spiritual, you want to. Then your son better be very spiritual. Um, but Zerubbabel is given permission by the Persian king to go back to Israel to rebuild the temple. Wow, things are changing. Well, Zerubbabel does go back to rebuild the temple, but he's not given any gold or silver, so he can't make it ornate. There is no Ark of the Covenant. There is no Law of Moses. Everything is burned out and gone. He maybe could recreate the doors to the front of the temple, but even at that, if you read Ezra and some parts of Nehemiah, the priests that were still at the temple didn't know what to do. They had not been instructed. It was a it was like a circus. They didn't know what to do, how to do sacrifices. They were doing them wrong. They weren't sanctified. In fact, the biggest issue was most of the priests working in the temple had married what they call foreign women, non-Jewish women. You say, well, come on. It's kind of prejudice, isn't it? If she's cute, marry her. One of the problem with spouses is they influence you. They're not perfect like you are. They always think they know more than you do, and they don't, <laughs> no matter what they say. So these priests are influencing, being influenced by their wives for foreign gods again. So hard to be strong and follow Jehovah when you have a spouse that doesn't know Jehovah. That's just watering down the work at the temple. Well, apparently a lot of the Jews in the exile in, in Babylon thought that not only was the temple being restored, but the walls were being restored. 
That was not Zerubbabel's mandate. Go and build the temple. And he did the best he could. Never quite got off the ground. It's kind of like you got the car, but you're not gas in the tank. So it's a difficult time. So Nehemiah, fourth generation Jew, being raised in Susa, the capital of Babylon. What happened? At the end of chapter one, it says, and I was cupbearer to the king. Wow, how'd you get that job? Do you apply for it in high school and go to college for it? When I was a brand new Christian, I always thought that the idea of being a cupbearer for the king was not something you'd really want to do. Well, I got 15 people in a room, they got numbers on their chest. So there's a knock on the door. Number lucky seven, lucky seven, come on down. King's having dinner tonight. Wait a minute, you just took number six this morning. Yeah, bad luck. I don't want to do it. You're going to do it. You're number seven. Come on. He's having pot roast and some strange vegetable. Well, the, the idea of a cupbearer, though, is a trusted position. And while I'm not sure that he would really wear a hard hat or whatever, I believe Nehemiah grew up in the kitchens of Babylon. Now, why would I say that? Because I want to. Actually, the Babylonians were known for putting on great feasts all the time. Do you remember in the book of Esther? There was a six-month, non-stop, 24-hour-a-day Denny's restaurant opened up for all the generals to come and to consider going to war with Greece. That was Esther's experience, a six-month banquet. <coughs> That's how the kings would show their power, by feeding everybody. Okay, I'm challenged. <laughs> Obviously, the cupbearer that wore this has been dead for a while. So I'm going to talk about the power of the spatula. I'm suggesting that Nehemiah probably grew up in the kitchens of Susa where great feasts were taking place at all the time, feeding thousands upon thousands of people. He would begin probably as a little eight-year-old, gathering food, and then eventually work his way into the butcher shop, meat cutters, work his way up for the vegetables, meal preparation, spices, the wines, <clears throat> learning the ins and outs of all the food that the king would eat. Because the people would bring these, these things to the king all the time. Thousands and thousands of sacrifices and animals and vegetables and fruits brought in and prepared. And the kitchens in Babylon never went out. They were constantly cooking. It was a totally hot spot to be in all the time. And I was suggesting that Nehemiah could very well have begun as a wood gatherer, as a small sous chef, basically doing the, the, the sauces and all, working his way up until he did a few meals for the king and went from a wood gatherer to a line cook, to a chef, to a five-star chef <clears throat> running the kitchens himself. And I believe at this time that when it came time for a new cup bearer, the other one may be retired, hopefully, <laughs> or just disappeared, Nehemiah was called to be the cup bearer for the king. Because if the king is going to eat the food, it wasn't just looking for poison. Nehemiah had to know this lamb is overcooked. 
I want to please the palate of the king, not just keep him alive. Now, this king has been pretty good as far as taking care of the Jews. He's not a real friend to them, but he's not an enemy. You've got to take your wins where you can. So he makes sure the spices were right. Things smelled right. They looked right. The plating was okay. Too much gravy, not enough gravy. That vegetable's out of season. Get that strawberry off that plate. You know, he breaks out in a rash for eat strawberries. <clears throat> he knew the king. But Nehemiah also sat right at the elbow of the king, right where the food come in for the, for the door. So Nehemiah would also be listening to the king. And what's the king doing all day long? Negotiating, listening, people complaining about their taxes. I want to build a boat. I wonder if the king ever looked over at Nehemiah and go, here come these Thebians again. Aren't their eyes kind of close together, man? They're like little weeping, winny guys, you know? And they want their relief from taxes. No. I want to have this forest. No. Get out of my presence. But the king would feed them. So Nehemiah is hearing all this negotiation for many, many years. It was the 12th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. Now, Artaxerxes reigned for 40 years. And talk about how dangerous it was. Well, he had a pretty good reign. It was pretty good to the Jews. Once Nehemiah left and came back and left again, in the 40th year, King Artaxerxes is killed. Not by a bad chicken leg, but by the palace guards who felt they weren't getting paid enough. All you bosses out there, time for a raise. (laughs) Watch out, your employees might get to you. But Nehemiah had always heard the promises of God at the synagogue. And when he, and his brother came to visit him, Hanai. That says, really, his brother? It could have been a king, you know, another Jew, just a friend of his came and told Nehemiah about <clears throat> the walls of Jerusalem, that they were torn down. And everybody thought they'd been rebuilt. But they hadn't been. And not only that, the guy says, and everybody who lives in Jerusalem is being ridiculed. They're being laughed at. God is being mocked. Oh, you Jews used to worship in this place, but there's nothing in it, but it's a hollow shell. Oh, you Jews should say God would protect you. Lizards knock over the bricks. And these guys would just ridicule the Jews, and the Jews felt shame. They were disorganized. They just were lost. Terribly, terribly lost. So when Nehemiah heard this, it just hit him. Ever had an experience where somebody shares with you some bad news? <clears throat> and every once in a while, it gets beyond our defenses. We hear, oh, oh, that's sad. Oh, that's really hard. And other times it just, wham. You just got to walk away. I remember I've, I've had that experience sometimes when I was in school and heard bad news about a professor or a student friend of mine. I had to look for that chair to sit down on. Just overwhelm me. This was Nehemiah's experience. He heard about what was going on in in, in Jerusalem. He became overwhelmed. And Nehemiah then began to pray for four months. Sometimes we say, I've been praying for four days. Where is God? Nehemiah never said that. Nehemiah prayed for four months. Nehemiah fasted. Well, fasting is an old-fashioned thing to do. No, it's not. It's been done for centuries. It's an opportunity to give up a meal to have more time for fasting. 
It's an opportunity to feel that gurgling in your stomach and say, I want to I want to want God more than I want the food. So fasting is a good practice to have to focus our attention on God. So Nehemiah prayed and he thought and he prayed and he thought and he prayed. Four months down the road, Nehemiah must have been sitting beside the king, maybe looking out the door of the palace, maybe to the east, wondering about a city of Jerusalem. <clears throat> and he lost himself. He had a sad face. Now, you never want to have a sad face in the king in the presence of the king. You know, Nehemiah, those pancakes this morning aren't something with me either. You feeling kind of bad there? I mean, you know, what's going on? No, no, king, live forever. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do this. And the king asks the most unusual question for a king. What's wrong with you? What do you want? And we read that Nehemiah is shocked. And he, he has a little, quick little prayer. Well, I wanted to tell you about that. We always pray those quick little prayers, right? <clears throat> you know, those little prayers of, I got a test tomorrow. Give me the, give me the wisdom right now. I'm not going to study, but just give me the wisdom. <clears throat> well, you know, we, we just forget that. But he prays that quick little prayer. Then he lays out for the king what's wrong with him. His ancestral home where his family is buried four generations ago is being trampled on. The people are being ridiculed. I feel humiliated being a Jew that the Jews are being laughed at. And the king says, okay, what do you think you need? Nehemiah had a list. (laughs) He was ready. He tells the king what he thinks he may want. And the king surprises everybody by going, you got it. Go and do what you want to do. He was given the governorship of Israel. He was given the American Express card to Ganal Lumber on the way there in Lebanon. He was given soldiers and horsemen and cavalry to go with him to have some authority. He was given a free pass through every territory he would go through on his way to Israel. Four more months of preparation, and the caravan left. Now, how big was this caravan? Well, you got soldiers, you got cavalry, you got horsemen, people that take care of the horses. You have Nehemiah and his family. Maybe 50 other families would come along, but some Jews were allowed to immigrate back to their country. I'm suggesting that that little tiny caravan might have been up to 500 people. They're going back to their homeland. And I think Nehemiah took along a few cook friends with his and other people that could prepare the food to feed the 500 as they would travel along. <clears throat> now remember, how far is Susa to Jerusalem? I told you this is the quiz. I told you this. No fair, you've been studying. It's my wife. <clears throat> 900 miles. It's not a straight line. It's kind of circular, up and down, around the roads. If it rained, do you travel in the rain? No. You don't. Why? The roads get muddy. The camels get their foot stuck, you know, all that kind of stuff. The average speed of a caravan was the speed of a camel. The average length you could travel with the camel was about 10 miles. So 900 miles, camel speed, how many days? 90. He didn't make it in 90 days. It probably took him four to six months. 
Why? Every city he went through, he had to stop, show his credentials, and prove, nah, 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 nah. I don't have to pay tax to you. King Artaxerxes says I don't have to. Okay. He also had to negotiate with, the, with the Aesop, the guy in charge of the forest of Lebanon, and order everything for Jerusalem. Say, wait a minute. I thought Jerusalem had block walls or big brick walls. Why is he wanting wood? Jerusalem had 13 gates <clears throat> that were all burned out. And Nehemiah had to tell this guy, okay, we have 13 gates. I've never been there. I don't have the measurements. But I don't want something about this big, about this big around. And, you know, how many do you want? 13 gates. Some of the gates are going to be 20 feet high. Some of the gates will be 10 feet high. <clears throat> so what do you want for a gate? Four by fours? Six by six? Eight by eights? Bigger the better? They didn't have laminate in those days. You had to cut down the tree and just kind of get it all set. How long would that have taken? I'm not suggesting that Nehemiah stayed there as he began cutting all the wood. But they had to come up with the order of what they wanted, how much they wanted, how they were going to get it there. And it all was paid for by the Artaxerxes American Express card. So after this is all negotiated, Nehemiah then goes on to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and this caravan of about 500 people enter into the middle of Jerusalem. And everybody's questioning, whoa, what's going on? We haven't seen a group this big for years. And he looks around the city of Jerusalem. <clears throat> he sees a discouraged people. Very few of them. Most people no longer live in the city. They live in the countryside. Because the city itself has gone to pot. Bushes, trees, weeds. It's a deserted town, basically. You wouldn't want to live there. Too many places for robbers to hide. And they had bad people around them. In the absence of leadership, evil can raise its ugly head. You have Sam Ballot, the Hornite, who plays for the Philadelphia 76ers. Tobias, the Amorite, who's going to be in the new Rams team. No, <clears throat> these names just kind of have a ring to them. Sam Ballot, the Hornite, probably an Amorite, uh, probably a gang leader, maybe 50 men under him that continued to pillage and to rob and do what they wanted to do. Tobias, the Amorite, also a gang member who had run wild over the people, and Gershom the Arab. They felt they owned that land <clears throat> because they didn't cause trouble for Artaxerxes. And building a wall, that's trouble, because the king had given orders years before, don't rebuild the gates, don't rebuild the wall, I will come back and I'll kill everybody in the city. That wasn't Artaxerxes' proclamation, that was his father's proclamation. <clears throat> so Nehemiah comes back into the city, 900 miles. And then Nehemiah spends three days whew, resting, just unpacking the camels, taking the camels to the camel wash, getting new hooves put on maybe, you know, setting up a small little place, do some barbecuing for the guys traveling and all that. Nothing is happening for three days. Everybody's really, really curious. <clears throat> what is going on? Nehemiah doesn't tell anybody. You'd think if this was me, I'd arrive and go, look, I'm the governor. Here, I'm going to put on a wall. Bow down to me. Bring me some taxes and bring me some ice cream. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. Nehemiah just comes in. The soldiers all go off to one area. They're going to have a fortress built for them. 
<clears throat> but not right now. They're just camping out. And the other entourage just kind of spreads out, and Nehemiah just is waiting. On the third day, Nehemiah acts by himself. At nighttime, he takes a donkey <clears throat> and goes out the gates, and he goes walking around the two miles of walls of Jerusalem. Two miles of wall. And as he's walking outside those gates, I think he's putting himself on those big blocks, feeling them, how big they are, how immovable they are. They've fallen at angles that are impossible. How are you going to get those things out? Archaeologists tell us that some of those blocks, in fact, most of them were probably four feet thick, eight feet across, 10 to 16 feet long. Even today, <clears throat> we would be hard-pressed to move those things with the modern equipment we have today. And this was the challenge. Now remember, I said the people of Israel were discouraged. I didn't say they were stupid, <clears throat> but they were discouraged. These are the people whose ancestors had helped build the pyramids. They knew how to do what they needed to do, what they needed was a leader. A leader would come along and say, we can do this. After Nehemiah had examined the walls and got all the way around, in that one night, the next day, day four, Nehemiah calls a meeting. And then Nehemiah says to the, all the people that are gathered there, maybe a few hundred, whatever, he says to them, you see the trouble we are in, verse 17 of chapter 2. You see the trouble we are in. Nehemiah didn't say, look, at, look, you guys have made a mess of this. I'm here to fix you. Nehemiah says, the trouble we are in. Who is this guy who looks like a Babylonian talking about we? Nehemiah knew who he was. The people had no idea who he was. He revealed himself as, I am like you. I'm a Jew. You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins. All of its gates are burned. Nothing left. Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that they may no longer suffer derision. They probably got a roar of applause and screaming, but people kind of went, yeah, we've heard that before. There had been a couple of attempts to rebuild the wall, but nobody ever stayed. And then Nehemiah said, I told them of the hand of God that had been upon me for good and also for the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah said to them, the king has given us permission. The king has given us provisions. The king has given us our freedom. God has changed the heart of the king. Let's build. Let's get going. This is, and they strengthened their hands. I think they prayed. I think they began to wonder, what do I do? How do we begin to do this? See, when God calls us to a task, it may take months to prepare for it. When the time comes to work, work. And the time had come. So we called the people together. And I believe with the great skill of a chef, you guys start doing this. You guys start doing this. You guys start doing this. 
and he broke them into 42 teams. How many people were on the team? It looks like from the records in Nehemiah, some of those teams are over 1,000. Why? When people heard about this, they started coming from the countrysides. Some of the tribes mentioned in here were 20 miles away. They walked two days to work their little fingers to the bone. Why? The walls might be rebuilt. They were motivated. They were excited. There's a man who's a sheriff in town. His name is Nehemiah. And Nehemiah organizes them like you'd organize a master kitchen. You guys, this is your good gift. You do that. In Nehemiah, we even have a point where he probably he talked to the jewelers of the city, guys who worked in gold. <clears throat> You're thinking, oh, great, they're going to make a little Pell pin. I was there at the wall, you know. <clears throat> Nehemiah goes, no. I wonder if Nehemiah challenged him and said, all of you jewelers, bring me your best necklace. This is all pastor-made-up stuff. It's in the Bible, you know. But I'm, I'm up here, I'm doing it, I got a spatula. Bring me your necklaces. And I wonder if Nehemiah didn't take each necklace and put it over his hands and just begin yanking on it. And they would break one after another, one after another, until maybe a few of them held strong. And he'd pull again, strong. Who made this? I did. See the little clasp? Yes. Can you make another one? Sure. 100 times bigger. That will be the gate to the city. We need 13 of them. And these jewelers knew how to smelt iron. They knew how to make, make the, the, the uh, molds to pour it into. They began gathering the iron ore and the pieces of iron and the junk they had laying around, melting it down and casting huge locks for the gates and maybe some hinges and maybe some handles and bolts, four-foot-long bolts <clears throat> that could be going through this thing. That's all they could do. They probably couldn't saw a straight line, but they could sure melt this magic stuff called dirt. They would turn it into iron. <clears throat> so everybody came with their own gifts and talents, and Nehemiah put them to work. How they actually built the wall, we really don't know. But you get a bunch of determined people that are smart enough, they can accomplish anything. Remember, I didn't say the people were stupid. I said they were discouraged. And discouraged person is just about the stupidest person in the world. <clears throat> because they have all the ability, they just don't do it. You remember that in college, some of your college friends, I just can't do this. Are you kidding me? You're smarter than I am. Just put the work in and study. Just take the time to get this done. Just have the time to move forward. But sometimes people just give up. The wall was built. Two miles, 13 gates, 52 days. 52 days. If these guys could only build a new stadium for the Rams, <laughs> they'd be here next September. Now we've got to wait three more years for the new stadium, that is. You see what an amazing miracle that was? They took their talents, and they took their heart, they took their hope, they took their prayers, and they followed a guy whose most powerful tool was a spatula. But Nehemiah had sat at the elbow of the king, <clears throat> had learned how to negotiate, had perhaps seen the king threaten and how the king responded. And no doubt when Samballot and Tobias and Gershom all came to kind of threaten Nehemiah, he sat there, I've seen this before, in the palace with the king. 
and could outflank them, outdo with them, let them know and put them in their place. And when finally these three guys said, we're coming in armed, Nehemiah said to all the workers, 10,000 maybe, guys, go home, get your knives, get your swords, get your spears, take them to work with you. And suddenly Tobias and Gershom, they go look up on the wall and there were 10,000 workers helping with the blocks, helping with the wood, putting the stuff together, and 10,000 swords facing out to them. I'm not saying these workers were great with the sword, but they might get lucky. <laughs> I, you know, I'd rather fight some guy who doesn't have a weapon in his hand. No, I'm a lover. I would rather not fight. Just, let's get some ice cream and talk this over. <laughs> but the guys, these bullies were put in their place. Not because he said fight. He just said, bring your weapon. And the greatest weapon these people had was their faith in God. They were rebuilding a wall. They were fulfilling a promise they were remembering. This is what God promised us. We are being restored. And the walls were completed. Nehemiah then ruled in that area for about nine more years, went back to see the king, then came back again and stayed there. Prayer and waiting go hand in hand. Prayer and waiting go hand in hand. What are you praying for? <clears throat> Don't give up. Ask yourself, Lord, is this what I want or is this what you want? If you're a single person kind of saying, I'll really start serving God once I have a spouse. Is that what you need? Hasn't God made you able to do what God's called you to do? Yes, you are able to do it. Having a spouse is a blessing and a liability. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute here. Because you can no longer focus completely on God. You've got to worry about your spouse and take care of your family. And that does become a responsibility. <clears throat> you can't run off to the, to the jungles of Borneo and not consider the health of your children and your wife and your family. Yes, God may call you to that and go. By all means, go. But don't feel that somehow you can't serve God by being a single person because you can and you must. Facing the unknown with God is a demonstration of faith. How do you know what God wants you to do? <clears throat> Use what you have. Perhaps you're a counselor. Use that for God's glory. Help people deal with their issues. Perhaps you teach people English, or perhaps you teach in college or teach in a school. Do that. If your weapon's not a spatula but a piece of chalk, use that for God. And if your job is simply a banker, investor, helping with family budgets, then do that. And you might say, but I'm nothing more than a layer of the cable guy. Then use that. We don't all have to go to seminary. Heaven forbid. <clears throat> it's a nice place to visit, but you want to live there. God wants you to serve him. God wants you to trust in him. And I want to challenge you today to think about the fact that you're before a wall. Cypress Church is your wall. It is your Jerusalem. How are you going to make us stronger? How can you help us fulfill the things of God? Because probably there is a fifth grade class that could use you. 
Oh, not that qualified. If you're breathing, you're qualified. Well, that's part of cheapening teaching. No. But the kids need more than just instruction. Sometimes it's just love. And yes, as a children's pastor for many years, I had more than a number of teachers say to me, I learned more than the kids did. I prepared my lesson and I learned more. They had to cut down what I learned down to a little piece so the kids could understand it. But I learned so much more. Teaching does take preparation. It does take time. What do you think these people were doing for 52 days? They were neglecting their farms. They were neglecting other things. Nehemiah, I believe, was feeding them and taking care of them. But they, they took a chance to serve God. What about dealing with junior high boys or girls? Boy, do they need help. <clears throat> they just need to be loved. But you know when they're 12 years old, they hate the parents. And the truth is, parents hate the kids. <laughs> My wife was at a party a couple of days ago, and one of the, one of the uh, families said to them, if I knew kids were going to be so hard, I think I'd have had dogs. <clears throat> My wife said she said amen. Being a parent is hard. Maybe you can do nothing more than watch your neighbor's kids for a few hours to give that wife a few hours off. Maybe you can work in a nursery. Maybe you can do something for your neighbors. This last Christmas, we had our second annual uh, <clears throat> Christmas social party for our neighborhood. And uh, that's not a big thing for me. I mean, I, I get scared when I do it uh, because I'm always afraid I can open the door and nobody comes. Boy, have I been disappointed. Open the door, everybody comes. It's wonderful. And this last year, when my home Bible study group brought all the goodies and everything, my neighbors came, they brought goodies, I was overwhelmed with cookies and all the good stuff and all. And I had an experience that was really quite moving. We had a a Chinese couple, about four homes down across the street, that was just learning how to do English. Another Chinese couple up here, they've been here about six years, they're pretty good at their English. They didn't know each other. They came to my party, and, you know, of course, being, you know, a uh, stupid white guy, you go, do you guys know each other? <laughs> no, not everybody in China knows each other. But <clears throat> I got them together, and, the, and they began talking, and the one girl said, do you speak Mandarin? And the girl answered her in Mandarin. They then left the party, walked to my back room, and the four of them just began to just in Mandarin. One of the girls had tears in her eyes. And I walked up, put my arms around them like I could understand what they were talking about. <clears throat> and I said, why the tears? She said, Mandarin is easy for me. English is hard. This is the first time in a year in America I felt relaxed. What great thing did I do? Open the front door. Go in the back, talk Mandarin. That was a blessing. I get to know the other neighbors. So what does a big thing about faith know? It's kind of building the wall, though, allowing people into your life and doing things for them. Changing hearts is God's specialty, no matter how dark that heart may be. Can you imagine a Babylonian king that never want anybody to stand in their way, who never want anybody to deny them what they want, gave this Jewish nation the freedom to go rebuild your nation. That doesn't fit the profile of a Babylonian king. But I do believe that the Jews in Babylon had continually influenced the leadership of Babylon. 
beginning with Daniel, Esther, Mordecai, and now Nehemiah. All throughout these last 300 years, when it came down to it, the Jews were there for the kingship. And by keeping the king happy, they spared the people in Babylon as well from persecution. This is what God did. The hearts of the king were changed. So your personal gifts and talents can change people and can be used of God. And not only that, I think a story that kind of touches my heart as well, is while Nehemiah had traveled from Babylon to Israel, he may not have been the most important person that ever did that. You see, 350 years to 400 years later, another caravan left the gates of Susa and made its way to Jerusalem. And when they got there, they said, where's the king? And Herod said, I'm the king. No, you're not the king. We want to find the right king, a newborn king. Well, we don't have one here. And I believe these magi, these kingmakers, these wise men that had come from Babylon, as they began to go maybe down to Egypt, they walked through a little village just six miles away from Jerusalem. And a wonderful young shepherd boy said, hey, you guys are awfully fancy dressed. Where are you coming from? One of the wise men might have said to this young shepherd boy, we came looking for a king. Hot dog, we got one. What do you mean, young man, you got one? Two miles over there. You see, two years ago, as I watched my sheep, angels proclaimed his birth. Now you come looking for him. He's right over there. And the Magi did find their king. They had traveled 900 miles to find the new king. We never had to travel that far. Some good things can come from Babylon. Good things more come from the heart of God for us. So this is our, our wall, folks. We have needs. Pray for those needs. Pray for four months. That's not a long time. It's a good beginning. But pray and ask God and say, what can I do to help rebuild the walls of my Jerusalem? What can I do to use my talents? What can I do to, to honor God with the things he has given to me? Nehemiah only had a spatula, maybe a hammer, but he used it for God's glory. You've been given the same thing. The same gifts to be a friend, to be a Christian, to love others and to care for them. Nehemiah had a great purpose in life. And it wasn't just working in the kitchen. It was leading a people. What an unusual organization and background he might have had. Now, don't go out of here and say the pastor's come up with a new revelation that Nehemiah was a cook. It's just a device I'm using to help you get the idea of a story of an ordinary guy whose primary job was to protect the food of the king could somehow rebuild a wall. I don't think he had a degree in engineering. But all he had to do was tell the people, this is what God can do. Let's see, he did this in the heart of the king. He can do it in our hearts. Let's strengthen our hands to the task. Would you join me in prayer? Precious Father, we always want to put Nehemiah up on a pedestal 
and yet I don't think he'd ever want to be there. I think he'd rather be in our kitchens and sitting at a table and maybe making a sauce or a little dessert or something, just, just wanting to make us feel good. Wanting to tell us about how God had used him. A simple cook, a simple food taster, a slave. And that he was to lead a people. Father, in some ways, Nehemiah was like a second Moses as he led people from captivity the second time to new hope and to new land. Father, you have given us the freedom to leave a world of sin and loss and hurt and pain and live in a place called the body of Christ. But we've all been gifted. We've all been called. We all need to serve. We cannot all serve in the same place, Father. We're not all salad makers. We're not all cooks. Father, pray. Use us in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, within our church. Father, we were made for work, and we want to work. Guide us, prepare our hearts, and allow us, Father, to have the freedom and the courage to serve you in all that we would do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.